Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live. Coming up on today's program, more drama in the skies with airplanes, serious accident yesterday, terrifying event. Also, drama at Starbucks. Your local coffee store might be closing down as the uh, staff learns how to deal with all people equally. At least they're going to be closing for an afternoon. And Israel at 70. How are they doing? That and more coming up on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live at 101.3 KPCG. We're online at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. And we'd appreciate any email you'd like to send to us. You can send those to comments at kpcg.fm. Sometimes people send in uh, story ideas or general comments, and uh, we certainly appreciate those. So don't be shy if you have something to send along. I'm Dwight Falk with you here today on uh, this, what is it today? It's Wednesday, April the 18th, midway through the week, and hopefully you're having a great week. Things are going very well here in Edmond, Oklahoma City, on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College. Uh, a lot of excitement about a uh, musical presentation coming up this Thursday evening at 7.30 p.m. at uh, Armstrong Auditorium. You can go to armstrongauditorium.org. And get all the information about that. It's uh, the Abraham new performance, a brand new uh, musical performance coming up. And again, that's going to be on uh, this Thursday. And I think there might be some tickets available left still. And uh, so that's coming up there at 7.30 p.m. April the 19th, which is a Thursday. It's a new oratorio by college music director Ryan Malone. And it uh, deals with the illustrious history of one of the Old Testament's most revered figures, Abraham and it's being brought to life in this modern, accessible, and grand choral orchestral work. They were practicing last evening for it, and again this evening. And uh, the parking lot was full with the cars of the uh, people that are singing in the choir, as well as uh, the people playing in the orchestra. So lots of excitement there. Should be a great performance, and uh, make sure you get a ticket if you're in the area. And we have a lot of listeners online at kpcg.fm. That won't be able to make it, I'm sure, but uh, should be just a tremendous performance. And uh, if you can make it, definitely recommend doing that. Thursday, April 19th, 7.30 p.m., that is uh, The Abraham. It's a new oratorio, and that's going to be here at Armstrong Auditorium. So that's exciting. Always want to keep you in the loop on those concerts and things in case you want to come down and see something. Or come up, I guess, depending on where you're coming from. Headlines to look at today. There's a lot of uh, interesting items in the news. This one's just a terrifying event yesterday. You've seen this all over the news. Uh, Southwest passengers pulled woman partially sucked out of window back into the plane. Engine went out and uh, had a uh, had uh, window go out. A lady go out the window and 
We uh, couldn't pull her in. A buddy, the guy helped, and we got her pulled in, and they tried to resuscitate her anyway. The, the crew and uh, the pilot, they got they got it landed somehow. Anyway, uh, it just a uh, ordeal. Where were you in relation to the woman who went out the window? Uh, across the aisle, a couple of seats up. That's tough. Yeah. And how much of her was out of the plane? Half. And what kind of shape was she when she got in? I didn't know. There was a loud boom. The the um, oxygen masks came down, and um, we just put our oxygen masks on. And I was one row ahead of the woman that um, her window got busted out, and Tim took care of us and got our masks on, and just started praying and. Um, it was a rough ride. We heard a big bang, uh, like some like some sort of explosive um, sound, um, and then we again uh, we started to dip. Uh, the plane started to take a dive, um, and then a few minutes later, the window became open, um, and then there was commotion from the passengers at that point because uh, we didn't know what was going on. It was one passenger, but there were so many things happening at the same time. We weren't sure. Um, and from there on, uh, it was scary. And, the, and the, of course, the pilot, she was amazing. I mean, 30 years of experience and just knew to get us down and within five minutes or whatnot, 30,000 feet, that's pretty incredible. She's phenomenal. She's amazing. It didn't feel like it was, like, free-falling, but it was definitely not, you know, it was an immediate realization that, like, something was wrong and something was, like, not going to be right and, like, you know, just looked up and saw like a flight attendant run towards the front of the plane. Um, I don't know. It was just it's terrifying. This is this is like something out of a one of those you know movies you'll see about problems flying. We've all flown. I've flown Southwest not that long ago actually, and uh, you know usually people are safe. There's not too many problems, but. Uh, if the weather gets bad, or in this case, there was a problem with the plane, I mean, it, it can be horrifying, and this happened yesterday, so hopefully it won't scare anybody too much, because we do have to fly a lot, but uh, still a pretty scary event. One passenger was killed, seven others were hurt Tuesday during a mid-air engine explosion on Southwest Airlines Flight 1380 that was taken off from New York and heading to Dallas. Jennifer Riordan, a married mother of two, died after engine parts shattered one of the plane's windows. There were 149 people on board. Passengers are calling the pilot, Tammy Joe Schultz, a hero for calmly guiding the plane to safety. And I would definitely say that's the case. I mean, from all accounts of people on board, uh, the plane was, uh, you know, uh, kind of rocking all over and dropping uh, altitude. And uh, just really in a, a very dangerous position. And I mean, if you've sat near a, a window seat right on the plane, or, or sorry, right on the the, the uh, wing of the plane, that area, uh, you know, you've probably looked out like I have and seen the uh, wing there and kind of moving around in the wind and looked at the uh, engines and and thought, wow, that's uh, that's what's keeping us up in the sky. And it's a machine, and machines can have problems occasionally, and this one did, and and uh, really serious problem there. But the her the uh, hero of the day was really that pilot for making sure that it landed without any more problems. 
the National Transportation Safety Board said one of the engine's fan blades showed signs of metal fatigue and broke off, which they think is one of the, the main reasons for the accident. So roughly 20 minutes after takeoff, they were at about 32,000 feet. The plane's left engine exploded, if you can imagine that. The blast sent shrapnel tearing through one of the plane's windows, causing the cabin to lose pressure. And, of course, then all the, the oxygen masks fell from the ceiling. Terrified passengers like Marty Martinez reached for oxygen masks as the plane rapidly descended. Martinez said that there was Wi-Fi on the plane, so he was able to stream a Facebook video as the plane descended into Philadelphia. He told CBS News, I thought I was cataloging the last moments of my existence. So that's something that's a little different, I think, nowadays with the technology is whenever something happens that is a sort of a tragic event or an emergency, people begin to text about it if they're there or they live stream it. That happened with the Parkland shooting. People were texting and streaming. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I guess you always tend to think, well, what would you do if, if you were in a uh, plane and it started to go down and you thought that was it? Uh, I'm amazed that people begin to text and live stream. I I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I don't think that would be the first thing on my mind at that point. But these people thought this was, uh, you know, the end of their physical life. So really a scary incident. <clears throat> and, uh, the uh, of course, there was the one lady that was killed um, because she was partially sucked out of the shattered window. This is unbelievable. Other passengers pulled her back and tried unsuccessfully to perform CPR. So this is a terrible thing. Of course, it's really bad um, news for Southwest. But uh, overall, flying is pretty safe. Uh, Tuesday's engine failure. It is not the first for Southwest linked to metal fatigue. In August 2016, a similar event occurred on a flight to Orlando. That 737 landed safely with no one hurt, but metal from the engine sliced into the fuselage. And uh, they said that they are concerned about that, of course, and they're going to continue to have uh, proper inspections and try to improve their inspections on their planes. But uh, that's the first U.S. Uh, person killed among, or the first person killed aboard a U.S. commercial airliner in nine years. So, you, I mean, it's pretty safe. If you consider all the people that fly every day, and if you travel through airports regularly, you know, I mean, there's thousands of people flying every day, and it's usually pretty safe. But uh, unfortunately, somebody did die yesterday, and that's the first person killed aboard a U.S. commercial airliner in nine years. But uh, still, I probably, just the fact that it was in such a terrifying way, I think, uh, sticks in people's minds. And it's unfortunate, certainly, that it happened. And sometimes people get pretty terrified of flying, and they don't want to do it after maybe something like this. Uh, and I was just thinking about the people on the flight that uh, landed, I guess, there in Philadelphia they would have to get on another plane to go to their destination, uh, I'm assuming. And uh, how how uh, hard would that be to get on another flight not too long after you were on one that almost went down? So I, maybe maybe they do something different with those people. I don't know. But uh, you'd have to fly again. So anyway, uh, that's always a good reason to, to uh, just... Um, Pray for protection, I guess, because it's it's uh, dangerous when uh, you go travel anywhere, really. But pretty pretty horrific situation there yesterday with that uh, Southwest flight. Something out of a movie, it seems like. 
Uh, another big story from yesterday is uh, this is uh, from the Houston Chronicle. Uh, Mrs. Barbara Bush dead at 92. So she lived a good long life. All kidding aside, really impossible to describe how it feels to have one of your children become president of the United States. I had trouble when... I had trouble when I was married to the president. And now to see that same fellow that I used to drive around in Little League carpools and I used to yell at to please pick up his room, to see him as president... It's truly amazing. Barbara Pierce Bush, the fiercely loyal wife of one U.S. president and mother of another, who was champion of literacy and admired an admired public figure in her own right, died Tuesday at her West Houston home at the age of 92. Relatives said she died from complications from congestive heart disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. <clears throat> With her health in decline, the family said in a statement Sunday she had decided to forego additional medical treatment and focus on comfort care. She was surrounded by family in her final days. So she did finally die there. She, of course, was in the news the last few days because she had decided to just not go back and get more treatments for some of, I guess, her heart issues. And at 92, I mean, everybody dies at some point of something, so she had a pretty good long life there. She's been, she was married 73 years, which is pretty amazing to a president, George H.W. Bush. She met him at the age of 16, and so they had quite a, uh, quite a life together. I, you know, one thing I didn't know about her is that she had lost, uh, I believe it was a daughter, to a uh, disease, I think it was leukemia, when the, the child was just about four. So uh, they had plenty of experiences in their lives, a lot of, a lot of honor being uh, the first lady and then the mother to a, another president, but also some difficulty, some tragedy in life. And I think that's what we typically find when we look at somebody that's lived a long time is that their life had some ups and some downs and uh, some tragedies and some, some triumphs. And so they certainly did, and she certainly did. Barbara Bush dead at 92. Here's a story from uh, CNBC. This has uh, been in the news lately. I've been watching this over the last few days with some interest. You might have uh, seen this uh, story. It was There was two uh, gentlemen in a Starbucks, I think it was in Philadelphia, black men who uh, went into the Starbucks, apparently didn't buy anything, uh, tried to use the restroom or did use the restroom, but anyway, were asked to leave the store. And uh, they wouldn't leave, and so the police were called, and they were arrested. And there was apparently some sort of outcry over it. I don't know that there was a real big outcry, but the media said there was an outcry of some sort, and there were some people protesting. So Starbucks been in the news in a negative way, and they're they're very uh, very left leaning as far as their owner and so forth. So it's, it's interesting when they get get some uh, flack for I guess racial issues. But uh, in order to combat this, CNBC says that Starbucks is going to close all company-owned stores. So that's a little different than just all the stores. It's just the company-owned ones, and that's about 8,000. On the afternoon of May 29th, mark your calendars if you like to go to Starbucks in the afternoon. And they're going to close it for that afternoon for Racial Bias Education Day. 
So um, not sure what they're going to learn there about racial bias, but uh, that's what they're going to do. They're going to close those 8,000 stores. Those are uh, U.S.-based locations, company-owned. They're going to, to train 175,000 employees and address implicit bias, promote inclusion, and help prevent discrimination. I've been to Starbucks probably more times than I should have been, <laughs> and uh, I don't remember there ever being any issue with uh, myself or anybody else that I ever saw there, but apparently they think there is. It says, once the company has completed this training at its uh, company-owned locations, it will make it that the training available to its licensed partners. The company is working with the Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the Equal Justice Initiative, among others, to create the program. And I think uh, there's there's a few people involved in that uh, this this training program they're coming up with, including former Attorney General Eric Holder, who uh, has uh, been in the news over the years for some controversial situations. But he's in the mix on this, too. And uh, also related to that, Starbucks' Howard Schultz says he's ashamed after controversial arrest of the two black men. I don't know that it was controversial, but the media said it was. The store manager called 911 when the men refused to leave after trying to use the store's restroom without making a purchase. The announcement uh, we made, he said, yesterday about closing our stores, 8,000 stores closed to do significant training with our people, is just the beginning of what we will do to transform the way we do business and educate our people on unconscious bias, Schultz said. So they're going to transform the way they do business. I don't really know what that means in practical terms. Um, they're talking about unconscious bias, which is, again, really tough to pin down. It's it's like saying you're biased, but you, you don't know that you are, so you have to change your behavior. Really tough to get down to what that exactly means. Um, and, uh, again, it, it gets pretty murky. Uh, the only real comment I have about it is that I went to a Starbucks in Seattle. The first Starbucks, as a matter of fact. That's why I went there. <laughs> uh, we were in the area anyway, and so we were like, oh, that's the first Starbucks. Let's go in there so we can say we sat in the first Starbucks. And uh, it's right down there by Pike's Place Market. And if you've ever been down there, you know there's a lot of homeless down there, uh, street performers, all sorts of people. And uh, so when you go into a Starbucks like that, or like say the one in, in Philadelphia apparently, or some of these bigger cities, you have there's a code on the restroom, and they have to give you the code to punch in so you can go use the restroom. Not the case here in a lot of the ones in smaller towns. I, you know, here locally, I don't think they have anything like that. But in some of the bigger cities, they do, and I'm sure the reason they do is because there's so many homeless and so many transient people that uh, would just kind of you know camp in there or do drugs or something, and they want to keep it a nice environment for their customers, which I appreciate. And so we went in there, and uh, we had to use the restroom, had the kids with us. And so we went in there, and we made a purchase, and we got the code. Uh, but we made a purchase, and we were going to anyway. But um, that's the policy of the company in some of those areas. I don't know why that's a big problem. I don't know all the details of the Philadelphia thing. I kind of watched some of the videos. And, you know, again, it, there's probably a lot of sides to the story, but uh somebody then came out in LA and said that happened to them too and they weren't allowed to go in there and it was a racial thing um 
I don't know, can't speak to every employee at Starbucks or their their you know overall company leanings uh, in that way. I don't think there's any big bias going on there. But that's the policy of the store. You're supposed to purchase something to use the restroom. So make a purchase. Why is this such a problem? You know, it doesn't have to be a um, doesn't have to be made a big issue. And uh, I think if somebody's looking, really looking to try to find some sort of injustice in their mind, they'll they'll find it. And but I just think, well, where where are the uh, peacemakers? I mean, couldn't we be all be peaceful and just try to go along with the the flow of the policy, even if it's not our preference? Uh, you know, you maybe maybe you've been in a situation similar to that where you're on a road trip, you stop somewhere, you need to use a restroom. A lot of cases, you make a purchase, even if you maybe don't exactly have to, just to because it's their business. And what I don't know what they're going to do. It'll be interesting to see what Starbucks does. But are they going to take those stores and those big cities and just have an open restroom policy? Hey, anybody can come in here for, and you can sit in here for as long as you want, even if you don't buy anything. Um, well, I, I tell you, I wouldn't go in there anymore if they just allowed anybody to just set up camp in those stores. It can't be done because there are people that take advantage of that system and say, I'm just going to stay here and you can't make me leave. And, you know, if you do, I'm going to accuse you of some sort of bias or something like that. Can't run a business that way. So anyway, I'm sure Starbucks is trying to get out in front of it because they don't want to take, you know, uh, they don't want to have a bad rap in the media. They don't want people to uh, look at them in a negative light. So I understand why they're doing it in that way, but I, I don't see a problem with the policy. If you didn't buy something, we can't let you use our restroom. I don't know why that's an issue. There, there are public restrooms around, usually, especially in bigger cities. So anyway, it's an interesting situation, but again, it's just I think it highlights the fact that people are really looking for uh, to stir up trouble. And if you go to thetrumpet.com and you look at uh, articles related to that, the topic of, say, race in the U.S., there's a lot of great information there. And it's just there's a lot of uh, animosity that's brewing, and no pun intended with the coffee story. But uh, you really need to look at those articles there at thetrumpet.com. Very important because it's not heading in a good direction. It's not heading in a good direction at all. And uh, I, I'll be very interested to see what what kind of training these employees get on unconscious bias. I don't even know how you'd begin to get into something like that. But uh, so interesting. I mean, it's not super significant in terms of, uh, you know, probably number of people affected and so forth. But it just, again, highlights the fact that there is a lot of division racially in the U.S. over, in some cases, some pretty silly things to where a person could just follow the policy and not make a deal out of it and move on with life. How hard is it to buy something and say, "Oh, I didn't realize that was the policy." Sorry. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, you know, give me a give me a coffee. <laughs> you can buy something just to uh, uh, go along with the flow, but that's not what happened there. So anyway, Starbucks will be closing down uh, the afternoon there of uh, May 29th. The 8,000 of the company's U.S. base locations. They're going to train that 107. They're 175,000 employees to address address implicit bias and promote inclusion. So anyway, just one of, the, one of those uh, stories that uh, seems to pop up every once in a while. Here's a really interesting write-up from the Associated Press, in case you uh, didn't realize it, and it's easy to kind of not think too much about uh, some of these dates that come up, but Israel, the nation of Israel there in the Middle East, is uh, turning 70. 
70 years since they've been a nation there officially under the name Israel. And, of course, the the uh, the Jews and uh, other Israelitish peoples have been in that region for a long time, but uh, 70 years as far as the official modern nation is concerned. The Associated Press writes this, Is Israel a success as it turns 70? As Israelis commemorate the milestone this week, satisfaction and a grim disquiet share the stage. It has a standard of living that rivals Western Europe without the natural resources. It can boast of scientific achievements and military and technological clout beyond its modest size. And it controls most of, as they say, biblical Israel. Of course, that's the land of Judah there. But they control that, most of it anyway. And despite widespread criticism of its policies towards the Palestinians, it has cultivated good diplomatic ties with most of the world. And, of course, there is a real anti-Israel bias, certainly in the U.N., in the media, even recently in the United States with the last administration. And they have not committed war crimes against the Palestinians. That's outrageous. The Palestinians have committed the war crimes. Iran has committed the war crimes. The Palestinian people put their own people in, in the way of danger often, including their children and their women intentionally to try to make it look like Israel's done something wrong. So that's just, uh, even in this write-up from the Associated Press, there's a lot of a lot of the bias in their writing and the way that they phrase things. But it says it's also a country, Israel that is, that is weary from decades of conflict. And uh, that's a really good point, and that's, that point's brought up on quite a few different Key of David programs from over the years. Uh, where there's there's been some quotes used highlighting that fact. And uh, that is the truth. They are surrounded by enemies, people that want to destroy them and openly say that. And they're fighting this limited war to where they just keep pushing their enemies back, and then the enemies rearm, and they... they uh, actually, Israel helps them sometimes with aid and other things, in some cases. And then they attack again, and they have to push them back where they could go and just put an end to it. They could wipe out quite a few of those uh, nations that have caused them problems. But, uh, you know, they're so worried about the world's opinion that they don't do that. And so it is wearing down the morale of the people to constantly be sort of at this heightened state of of uh, having to fight, potentially, having to to uh, to fight off enemies that want to destroy you, but never being able to really go out and absolutely wipe out the other side. And so eventually people get worn down, and that's uh, highlighted here, just the fact that the country is weary from decades of conflict with the Palestinians and other nations. They say Israel has religious, ethnic, and economic divisions, it is still seeking recognition in a region that has not fully come to terms with the presence of a Jewish state. Uh, and I would say that's uh, quite the understatement. It's not that they haven't um, you know, fully come to terms with the presence of Israel. Iran and others say they want to obliterate Israel, push them into the sea, wipe them off the map, destroy them in every way possible. So, yes, I would say, if you want to put it very mildly, that uh, they haven't fully come to terms with the presence of the Jewish state. And, of course, the uh, I guess the irony of that is that the, the Jews have been there for thousands of years, even though the, the modern uh, nation there of Israel has only been there 70, but the people have been there a lot longer when you look at, of course, archaeology. 
which proves that they have been there for a long time, and that uh, drives the uh, uh, some of the people in that nation or over in that area uh, quite mad because they can't stand the fact that the the Jews actually have claim to that land. But uh, so there's a lot of uh, tension in that region. It says the grand peace hopes of the 1990s have mostly evaporated. Um, I would say probably completely evaporated. They still talk about a peace process, I guess, at some times, but uh, there hasn't been any real peace process. All that's been is Israel giving up things for the promise of maybe peace at some point, and then and then we haven't seen peace. So it's been a, really a horrible situation in that light. And Israel, as a matter of fact, the uh, peace process has been a deadly wound for them, and you can read plenty about that at the trumpet.com in some books and uh, that are offered there about the uh, the Middle East, as well as, you know, you can look at Jerusalem and Prophecy, and you can look at um, some really good write-ups at thetrumpet.com. There's a good search feature there. You can find all the articles you want that talk about the fact that that peace process has been a deadly wound, and the Trumpets chronicled that for, well, the last 20-plus years. It says, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, despite winning three elections since 2009, is reviled by many and faces corruption scandals. Well, that's their opinion anyway. He's, he's been a pretty good leader for them in a lot of ways. At least he has some strength, and uh, he does call things out in a pretty uh, honest way, I think, in most cases. But, of course, any leader that's strong for Israel is going to be um, ridiculed in the world, that's for sure. So it says, uh, or this AP write-up goes on to talk about several areas of uh, modern Israel over there and, and how they're doing and at, at coming up on their 70th anniversary. They talk about the wealth and economic uh, inequality. Uh, fueled by a vibrant high-tech sector, Israel's per capita GDP of almost 40,000 ranks with Italy and South Korea and is within reach of Britain and France. So that's pretty good, actually. But it also suffers from one of the highest levels of inequality in the developed world, and poverty is especially prevalent among its Arabs and ultra-Orthodox Jews. So anyway, they're, they're uh, trying to say there's a lot of inequality. That's something people like to, to harp on. Um, could be the case. Don't know all the details about that, but uh, that's something that uh, they're looking at there anyway. But I think overall they have a pretty good per capita GDP, so they've been blessed in a lot of ways. Uh, they say Israel's been able to punch above its weight for a country of just under 9 million. Israel has enjoyed surprising success. Yeah, surprising success, right? Almost like uh, God blessed them in some way. They say it counts eight living Nobel, uh, Nobel winners among its citizens and has helped give the world instant messaging, Intel chips, and smart autonomous vehicles. High-tech units in the military have made Israel a global cybersecurity powerhouse. They've done quite a bit. They say it is in a small club of nations to have launched a satellite, and it's widely believed to be among an even smaller group with nuclear weapons, although the government won't confirm that. Israel has one of the world's strongest air forces, and they've needed it because of the, uh, the threats that are all around them constantly. And so it gets into, uh, you know, some of the other entertainment there as well with their, their basketball program and, and some of their, uh, the people that they've had uh, in uh, Hollywood and other places. And then they talk about forging a national identity. Despite decades of development, Israel is still working at forging a national identity. Yeah, that's true, because uh, nobody wants them there in the Middle East. Uh, the uh, Arabs don't, anyway. 
And so there's this uh, definitely anti-Israel movement that goes on and has gone on since they got there 70 years ago to try to get them out of the area, even though when you look at biblical archaeology and you look at it accurately and correctly, as as, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong College does, uh, there's so much evidence. The more they dig, the more they find that the Jews, as a matter of fact, have been there for a long time. Matter of fact, on the Trumpet Hour program today, it's one that you don't want to miss. Joel Hilliker talks to some of the Herbert W. Armstrong College students and alumni that have come back just recently from uh, about a three-month dig over there in Israel and uh, found quite a bit of uh, amazing things, these coins from uh, years ago that the Jews had made when they were um, they were uh, holed up in a cave, a lot of them, and... Uh, and fighting over there. And so uh, they have history that goes back far beyond 70 years. And the more they dig, the more they find out about that. So there's a lot to really look at there. Because Israel is in this kind of constant battle of, well, do, should they be there or should they not? And the archaeology proves that they should. It's their land. They've been there a long time. But it says, soon after Israel's establishment in 1948, they were joined by immigrants from countries like Morocco, Yemen, Iraq, and Iran. These Middle Eastern Jews had little in common with their European counterparts. And, of course, there's been some uh, some uh, dissatisfaction between the groups. And so a lot of people have come there over the years. And uh, this talked about even on the Trumpet Hour program uh, today about how there's just, there's just a lot of different uh, nationalities and a lot of different people there. So it is it is quite the melting pot. And uh, then they talk about uh, Judaism, that religion, and uh, relations with the Arab world. So says after Israel declared independence, its Arab neighbors attacked it. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of good history on that. There's some Key of David programs that talk about that. Even after the watershed 1967 Mideast War in which Israel captured parts of Syria, Jordan, and Egypt— the Arab world refused to engage them. Uh, they began That began to change in 1979 with a peace agreement with Egypt. Now, that's the one shining light there when you talk about peace in the Middle East. And there's a great booklet at thetrumpet.com on that, The Way of Peace Momentarily Restored. And that talks about Herbert W. Armstrong and Anwar Sadat and the history there between Anwar Sadat and Israel. And the fact that he, he, of course, being the leader of Egypt at the time, he really did change his heart, something you don't see a world leader do very often. He changed his heart, he changed his way of thinking, and he went to make peace with Israel and was sincere in doing it. And, of course, if you know that history, you know that Sadat did not last long. He was assassinated, and uh, a lot of that uh, points back to Iran. But there was that, that momentary peace. Jordan followed, as said in 1994, after Israel reached an interim peace deal with the Palestine Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, Meanwhile, Netanyahu strengthened ties with countries like India, China, and Russia. So they've been trying to improve relations with some nations. uh, But at the same time, you know, you have Iran just constantly wanting to get Israel out of the area. And uh, the U.S. has been a very strong ally of Israel over the years until the last administration. And it, well, even before then, I think there was uh, not the best relations in some ways, but in particular with the Obama administration, it was just absolutely, uh, there was hatred and enmity towards the nation of uh, Israel there in the Middle East. And so without the U.S. as a strong and reliable ally, 
you know, the Bible prophecy talks about them going to Europe, going to Germany for help, and that's going to be a problem for them. But uh, anyway, they're always looking. They need allies and they need peace, and they haven't they haven't had it. It's uh, it's been elusive, as this uh, AP write up says. And uh, they've tried to engage with the Palestinians somewhat, but that certainly has not worked at all. So uh, just kind of an interesting look at some of the history there of Israel at 70. This is from the Associated Press. Israel at 70, satisfaction and grim disquiet shared the stage. And if you want to know what's going on there in uh, Israel and in Jerusalem and uh, of course, it factors in very heavily to Bible prophecy. Of course, you can go to thetrumpet.com and also the website, watchjerusalem.co.il. If you just go to Watch Jerusalem, you should be able to pull that up. And that's uh, that's uh, there. Uh, Brent Noctegal works on that. Of course, he's over in Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of great uh, material there that focuses very much on Jerusalem, on Israel, on archaeology, and uh, the news uh, that's going on over there. So really interesting to stop and consider what's happening in uh, Israel. 70-year anniversary coming up this week, so so pretty interesting to stop and take a look at some of that. And it factors very heavily into the future as well. And as I mentioned earlier, the Trumpet Hour program today, uh, really make sure you get time to listen to that, even if you can't catch it live or on a replay. Uh, make sure that uh, you download it and listen to it, because it's really neat to hear uh, firsthand experiences from students and alumni here from Herbert W. Armstrong College, who were just over there digging for th- about three months and now are back and are sharing some of their experiences, some of the lessons that they learned, and what it was like to be on an archaeology dig uh, in in Jerusalem. So really a fascinating program today and, and a, a great time to listen to that and think about some of the history there of that uh, modern nation of Israel. There's a write-up here from uh, the local.de coming out of uh, Germany, and there's been uh, problems in that nation, in Germany, with a lot of anti-Semitism recently. And uh, there's another uh, event that occurred. It says, Jewish men attacked with belt by Arabic-speaking youth in central Berlin. So this was filmed, and now it's on the Internet. Probably won't get a lot of attention. It's not something that's um, focused on too much. But uh, there are more incidents like this in uh, Germany. And a lot of it's coming from the the immigrants, not necessarily the German people themselves in this case, but from the immigrants from some of those uh, Islamic nations. It says the attack happened at around 8 p.m. on Tuesday evening in the Prenzlauer Berg district, according to the police report. It says the two Jewish men, who were reportedly wearing kippahs, were verbally attacked by a group of three youths who used anti-Semitic epithets against them. One youth then emerged from the group of three young men and attacked a 21-year-old Israeli with his belt while shouting Jew at him. The victims of the attack were able to record footage of it on a mobile phone, which was later published on Facebook by the Jewish Forum for Democracy. So one event, again, it's not a huge event, but there are a lot of these events occurring. And it's so interesting that in in a world, in the West here anyway, where, you know, there's so much made about uh, any little slight, depending on which way it goes, 
you have some very specific attacks against the Jews happening in Germany. And not that anybody would probably, you know, support that, but at the same time, you just don't hear a lot about it in the news other than a passing story, and then it kind of moves on. I mean, the, there's, there's, and this is obviously, uh, you know, anti-Semitism for no reason other than they don't like the Jews. That's the only reason. And, uh, of course, knowing the horrible history there of what happens uh, when— the uh, anti-Semitism really gets rolling. I mean, we're not that far away from World War II and, and the Holocaust. You know, there's there's a startling amount of these events that are occurring uh, in different nations, especially in Europe now with all the immigration over there. And, uh, you know, it, it does make the news on some level, but it's not it's not stopping. Uh, those those movements seem to be just just plowing straight ahead. And uh, so whenever they pop up in the news, it's, it's worth stopping and taking a look at it because— uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a small group today, but it can grow and, and swell and become a much, much bigger issue in the future. And uh, Bible prophecy indicates that it certainly will. So that's a story coming out of uh, Germany today. California is in the news a lot. California, beautiful, beautiful state in so many ways, but uh, in some ways not now. California has eight of ten most polluted U.S. cities. Can you believe that? That's a, that's a higher number than I would have I would have thought. They say, forget the golden state, California should be called the smoggy state. Eight of the U.S.'s ten most polluted cities in terms of ozone pollution are in California, according to the American Lung Association's annual state of air report released Wednesday. The Los Angeles, Long Beach area took the dubious distinction of being the nation's most ozone polluted city, as it has for nearly the entire 19-year history of the report. Uh, I guess L.A. wouldn't be surprising, but I, I was surprised it was eight of the top ten. That's, that's a lot, 80%. It says, overall, the report said about 133 million Americans, more than four of ten, live with unhealthful levels of air pollution, placing them at risk for premature death and other serious health effects such as lung cancer, asthma attacks, cardiovascular damage, and developmental and reproductive harm. Air can be pretty bad in some places, um, even here in Oklahoma with wildfires. Um, depending on where you are, there can be some industrial <laughs> smoke output that's not good and, you know, other things. But uh, a lot of pollution, especially around the cities there in California. They say we still have a lot of work to do in this country to clean up air pollution. And that's according to uh, Lindsay Mosley-Alexander, the director of the Association's Healthy Air Campaign. The report looked at pollution levels from 2014 to 2016. Ozone pollution was worse overall in this report than it was in last year's report. So um, some of the cities uh, include Bakersfield. That was in second place for ozone pollution. Other California cities on the list include Fresno, Sacramento, and San Diego. The only non-California metro areas in the top 10 list were Phoenix and New York City. So... Eight of the top ten most polluted cities in terms of air quality and ozone issues. Eight of ten, eight out of ten are there in California. There was another write-up there today, too, about how uh, in San Francisco, the tourism industry is begging people to clean up the streets because, as was reported on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show a while ago, the uh, streets are just so filthy. It's like a third-world country in some of those areas because of the homeless people. But maybe now, you know, that earlier story where everyone can go use the restroom in Starbucks, apparently, maybe they can just go in there and take care of it. 
clean the streets up, go into Starbucks. So we'll see what happens. Don't know if they're going to allow that, but uh, I'm not sure, uh, uh, you know, what the solution is there other than obviously uh, don't be homeless, don't have homeless people in the cities. But that's a tough one to uh, to try to fix, I guess, in, in the current environment. So uh, if, anyway, if you're out in California, might be careful with your breathing, and uh, that could be for a lot of uh, larger larger areas uh, as far as cities and metropolitan areas go. Uh, you're listening to Trumpet Radio Live here on 101.3 KPCG. We are online at kpcg.fm, and we have a live link at thetrumpet.com. Thanks for spending some of your Wednesday with us today. Uh, make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show coming up in a bit. Uh, Mr. Stephen Flurry really getting after the uh, collusion here in the United States. But it's not the collusion the media is talking about. The more they look at collusion, really, it's on the left. And uh, the left is colluding and has been colluding for a long time to uh, get into a lot of trouble, but specifically lately to undermine the current administration. And the more uh, information comes out about that, the really the more shocking it is. So a lot of great audio clips today and... uh, Really, I mean, there's just not too many voices out there that are that are attacking the uh, the reality of what's happening, and really this sort of deep state or whatever you'd like to call it uh, in the U.S. that is trying to undermine the current administration. But the evidence is pretty alarming and uh, pretty shocking. And uh, two books that he mentioned: uh, "America Under Attack" and "Great Again." There at thetrumpet.com. Those are really important to read at this time in particular because of all the things that are happening in the uh, U.S. right now. And the media is colluding uh, in, in many ways with uh, the left, so you don't hear the story that you really should hear. So make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today. That's a very important program coming up here in just a bit. Also stop and check out the uh, trumpet.com today. Top story is China's Great Leap Toward Strongman Rule by Jeremiah Jacques. Xi Jinping's power grab places the might of the world's most populous nation in the hands of one ambitious man. And a lot's been happening over in China. And, of course, they've been in the news with this uh, sort of little bit of a beginning of a trade war with the United States. But they're definitely very ambitious and uh, moving forward with a strong one-man rule. Xi Jinping uh, had his power grab and now... They are really on the move. So make sure you uh, read that story. And again, check out the Trumpet Daily Radio Show. And as mentioned earlier, the Trumpet Hour program today. Really great programs uh, here on KPCG. That's all we've got for today on this Wednesday version edition of Trumpet Radio Live here at 101.3 KPCG. Thanks for spending some time with me. I'm Dwight Falk. Have a great rest of your uh, Wednesday, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow. You're listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.